This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Infamous Locales. In this series, I'll detail places that have become infamous after several crimes, mysteries, tragedies, or murders have occurred there. This time we're going across the pond, as they say, to visit London, England. A series of murders that occurred in the area known as Whitechapel would make it one of the most infamous places in England. While many of you are probably familiar with the Jack the Ripper murders, you might not know that there was most likely two serial killers operating in and around Whitechapel at the same time. This is Chapter 2 of Infamous Locales. Whitechapel and the Jack the Ripper murders. The east end of London lies east of the Roman and medieval walls of the city of London and north of the River Thames. Whitechapel is located close to the London docks. Because of this strategic location, it has long been a popular landing spot for immigrants and other working class settlers. Since the 16th century, Whitechapel has been home to tanneries, breweries, and foundries. One of these foundries, the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, cast both Big Ben and Philadelphia's Liberty Bell. By the early 1800s, tanneries, slaughterhouses, and other industries in Whitechapel had created a crowded, noisy, and polluted district. It was located outside the city walls of London, so the police presence was somewhat scarce to serve the growing population. Working-class factory and dock workers eked out a living and lived in overcrowded, ramshackle housing. By the 1840s, Whitechapel and the East End resembled the London described in Charles Dickens' novels, rife with poverty, alcoholism, disease, homelessness, and crime. Women were especially vulnerable to crime and violence. Even the worst-paying factory jobs were not available to women, and if they were widowed, divorced, or unmarried— they had very few options available to earn enough to feed and house themselves. It was even worse if they had children to support on their own. Many women who found themselves in these desperate straits turned to prostitution to survive. By 1888, London's Metropolitan Police estimated that there were approximately 62 brothels and 1,200 prostitutes within Whitechapel. Note. While in current vernacular, the term sex worker is used to describe those who make a living trading sex for money, I will use the more antiquated term prostitute, since that is a term used in reports and articles from the late 1880s when these events took place. The more updated term seems out of place in the telling of these cases. The other more poetic term used during the 1880s for prostitutes was unfortunates. As a result of these factors, Whitechapel earned a reputation as a place where bad things happened. The area around Flower and Dean Streets, located in Whitechapel, was described as, quote, perhaps the foulest and most dangerous street in the whole metropolis, unquote. But others debated that opinion because Dorset Street had also been called the worst street in London in newspaper accounts of that time. It was among these streets where a series of murders later attributed to a fiend calling himself Jack the Ripper, began in 1888. On Tuesday, April 3, 1888, a young woman named Emma Elizabeth Smith, who worked as a prostitute in Whitechapel, 
was attacked, gang-raped, and robbed in the area of Osborne Street and Brick Lane. She survived the attack and was able to make it back to her lodging house at 18 George Street in Spitalfields. She told her lodger, Mary Russell, that she had been attacked by three men. She described one of them as a youth. She was taken to the London Hospital, where it was discovered that a blunt object had been inserted into her vagina and had ruptured her peritoneum. Smith developed an infection from the injury and died the following day. Smith's murder was investigated, but her attackers were never caught. This is often identified as the first Jack the Ripper murder. However, at that time, newspapers reported that Smith was a victim of one of the high rip gangs, bands of thugs who extorted protection money from prostitutes. As well, Smith herself identified her attackers as a group of men, and the subsequent Ripper murders would be attributed to a lone killer. A second murder that occurred the following August has also historically been tied to Jack the Ripper. The body of Martha Tabram was discovered in the early hours of the morning of August 7th at the George Yards building in Whitechapel. She had been stabbed 39 times. Two witnesses, a prostitute who knew Martha and the beat cop on duty in the area that night, reported seeing her in the company of two soldiers earlier that evening. Police believed Martha, a known prostitute, had been attacked and murdered by a client. Police investigated the murder and put several soldiers stationed nearby on identity parade, or what in America we call a lineup. But no one was positively identified as Martha's killer, and her murder went unsolved. Less than a month later, on Friday, August 31st, Mary Ann Polly Nichols' body was discovered by a cart driver at 3.45 a.m. She was lying on the ground in front of a stable entrance with her throat cut twice from left to right. She had several more slashes to her abdomen, which had created deep cuts. Many now believe that Polly Nichols was the first true Jack the Ripper victim. Like later victims, her throat had been slashed and her body mutilated. The cuts to the abdomen and later the mutilation of other body parts would become his signature. But the next murder, just over a week later, would be the most grisly to date and would set off panic in the East End of London. On Saturday, September 8th, the body of Annie Chapman was discovered at 6 a.m. in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. Annie told a friend as she was leaving her lodging at 2 a.m. that she was going to see a client in order to get money to pay her rent. Annie was a prostitute, and it is unknown if she had an appointment to see a regular client or was going out to solicit a stranger in the streets. In any case, at around 5.30 a.m., a witness reported seeing Annie speaking to a man just beyond the backyard on Hanbury Street. He was described as over 40 years old, taller than Annie, with dark hair, a dark complexion, and wearing a dark overcoat and a deerstalker-type hat. To give you a visual, Sherlock Holmes is most famously portrayed as wearing a deerstalker hat. Another witness, a resident of number 27 Hanbury Street, reported hearing voices on the other side of the fence around 5.30 a.m. before hearing the sound of something heavy falling against the fence. Annie Chapman's throat had been cut from left to right, as had Polly Nichols, but Annie had also been disemboweled. Her intestines had been pulled out of her abdomen and thrown over each of her shoulders. Part of her uterus was also missing. The local paper, The Star, reported the horrific murder, 
The news article read, London lies today under the spell of a great terror. A nameless reprobate, half-beast, half-man, is still at large. The ghoul-like creature who stalks through the streets of London is simply drunk with blood, and he will have more. Now the citizens of Whitechapel began to panic. They demanded that the police find the killer quickly and put him behind bars. They criticized what they perceived as police inaction that allowed the killer to murder at will. A mob formed and descended on the Commercial Road police station. Residents believed mistakenly that a suspect had been arrested and was being held there. Local residents also formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee and offered a reward for the apprehension of the person terrorizing their community. They also hired two private detectives to investigate. Just three days after Annie Chapman's mutilated body was found, an arm was pulled from the Thames River near Pimlico, about eight kilometers west of Whitechapel. On September 27th, a letter arrived at the Central News Agency. It was subsequently forwarded to Scotland Yard investigators. Dated September 25th, in part it read, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly. Wouldn't you? My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. The cops and the newspapers now had a name for the killer, Jack the Ripper. The body parts found in the Thames are now not associated with Jack the Ripper, but with a second serial murderer known as the Thames Torso Murders. Could it be possible that Jack did not want the second killer to get credit for his horrible handiwork, and this is why he sent his first communication? Three days after the Dear Boss letter was received, two more butchered women were found. This time, both were killed on the same day. This horror would be dubbed by the Ripper the Double Event. On Sunday, September 30th, the body of Elizabeth Stride was found at 1 a.m. inside a gate at 40 Burner Street, Whitechapel. Her throat had been cut from left to right. Investigators determined that she had been killed just minutes before she was discovered. Perhaps the killer had been frightened away quickly by someone arriving soon after the initial attack. The body was not mutilated, maybe because he didn't have time. Some speculate that this was why he sought out a second victim that same evening. This time, the murderer targeted Catherine Eddowes. She was found about a 12-minute walk from the place Elizabeth Stride was discovered. The Ripper worked quickly, slashing her throat and then mutilating her face and abdomen. Her intestines were splayed out over her shoulders, and her left kidney and uterus were removed. Her body was discovered at 1.45 a.m., most likely just minutes after she was killed. The following day, October 1st, a postcard was received by the news agency. It was again signed Jack the Ripper and made reference to the two murders. It read, I was not cotting, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. 
couldn't finish straight off. Had not got time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. The reference to the double event, as well as the confession that number one squealed a bit and that he couldn't finish straight off, seemed to confirm to police that the Saucy Jack postcard was from the Ripper. Some, however, doubt that any of the letters received during the Ripper investigation were real. There were some suspicions that newspaper men who had access to the details of the investigation wrote the letters in order to sell more papers. One day after the postcard was received, the torso of a woman was found on the grounds of the new Scotland Yard construction site. Of course, these grisly finds occurring during the middle of the hunt for the Ripper caused many to connect all the murders together. However, in time, only five murdered women would be definitively tied to Jack the Ripper. The other Whitechapel murders have either been attributed to the torso murderer or unrelated to either of these two serial killers. The five suspected Ripper victims are Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and the last one would be Mary Jane Kelly. Mary Jane Kelly, also known as Fair Emma, Ginger, and Black Mary, is believed to be the final authenticated Jack the Ripper victim. Her murder was the most brutal of all. Mary Jane had been married to a coal miner, but after he died in a mine explosion, she began trading sex for money in Whitechapel to support herself. She moved to London from Cardiff, where she at first worked in a brothel in the West End. She is said to have traveled to France with a client, but returned soon after. On her return, she began to use a French version of her given name, calling herself Marie Jeanette. Kelly was an alcoholic who was often loud and quarrelsome when drunk. This earned her the nickname of Black Mary. She moved to the poor East End of London, most likely because the higher-end brothels in the West End no longer would employ her. She lived with one man after another in Whitechapel, the last one being Joseph Barnett. They met in April 1887 and quickly moved in together, taking a room located at 13 Miller's Court. It was located behind Dorset Street in Spitalfields. According to a neighbor, Kelly had broken the window beside the door of her room after losing her key while drunk. After that, she simply put her hand through the broken window to unlock the door. Barnett and Kelly had a falling out when Kelly returned to prostitution after he lost his job and had to take a lower-paying one. She then allowed another prostitute to stay in their room while he was at work. Barnett moved out of the room on October 30th, just a week before her death. He continued to come by to visit Kelly during that time. The last time he'd been to the room on Miller's Court was November 8th. Kelly's friend Maria Harvey was also there. Both Barnett and Harvey left around 8 p.m. that night. Neighbors reported that Kelly had gone out and then returned to her room with a client, a man with reddish hair and a bowler hat. Kelly could be heard singing Irish songs, something she often did while drunk. About 2 a.m., Kelly was seen again out on the street. She asked a friend, George Hutchison, to borrow a sixpence. He told her that he had no money. As she took her leave, he saw her approached by a man of, quote, opulent appearance. The two left walking towards Kelly's room. It was about 2.45 a.m. Kelly's neighbor returned to her room at 3 a.m. and noticed that the lights were off in Kelly's room. All was quiet. Another neighbor said she did not sleep much that night 
and heard someone leaving the residence about 5.45 a.m. The following day, on November 9, 1888, Kelly's landlord sent his assistant, Thomas Boyer, to collect the rent from her. Kelly was six weeks behind on her payments. When Boyer knocked and no one answered, he reached into the open window and drew aside its covering. It was then he saw Kelly's mutilated corpse lying on the bed. Kelly's murder was by far the most violent of all the Ripper's victims. This time he was off the street and had the privacy of the small room to commit his atrocities without being discovered. He took his time with his last victim. The medical examiner determined that Kelly had been killed between 2 and 8 a.m. in the morning. Warning, the following description is quite graphic. You may want to skip ahead if you feel it may be disturbing to you. The doctor's detailed notes read, The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed. The shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body, with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent, the forearm supine, with the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angles to the trunk, and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubis. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed and rolled down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts. The uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed and in a line with the neck was marked by blood which had struck it in several places. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheek, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features. The neck was cut through the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct ecchymosis. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx through the cricoid cartilage. Both breasts were more or less removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the fourth, fifth, and sixth ribs were cut through, and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the costal arch to the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front to the bone, the flap of skin including the external organs of generation, and part of the right buttock. The left thigh was stripped of skin, fascia, and muscles as far as the knee. The left calf showed a long gash through skin and tissues to the deep muscles and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankles. Both arms and forearms had extensive jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small superficial incision, about one inch long, with an extravasation of blood in the skin, and there were several abrasions on the back of the hand, moreover showing the same condition. On opening the thorax, it was found that the right lung was minimally adherent by old firm adhesions. 
the lower part of the lung was broken and torn away. The left lung was intact. It was adherent at the apex, and there were a few adhesions over the side. In the substances of the lung, there were several nodules of consolidation. The pericardium was open below and the heart absent. In the abdominal cavity, there was some partly digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. The doctor believed that Kelly had been killed when her throat was slashed and the mutilation of her body occurred post-mortem. He also believed it would have taken the killer upwards of two hours to perform all the cuts and wounds to the body. It was concluded that the killer did not have any specialized surgical or medical knowledge. In fact, the examiner wrote, In each case, the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or a person accustomed to cut up dead animals. The papers reported that an enormous amount of mourners turned out for Mary Jane Kelly's funeral on November 19th. The streets were crowded, and it took some time to transport her from the Shoreditch Mortuary to the cemetery at Ladestone, which would be her final resting place. Mary Jane Kelly is considered the last verified Jack the Ripper victim, but there were still a few more women found dead who, at first, were suspected to be the work of the Ripper. On December 20th, 29-year-old Rose Milet was found strangled in her room off Poplar High Street. Doctors who examined her concluded that she had been murdered by strangulation, but one of the investigators believed she had accidentally hung herself on the collar of her dress while drunk. There were no other marks on her body or sign of a struggle. While it was never fully decided if she'd been murdered, died accidentally, or died of suicide, her case was placed in the file of suspected Ripper murders. In July of 1889, Alice McKenzie was found murdered in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. Like previous victims, her throat had been cut. There were also wounds to her abdomen. Investigators didn't agree on whether she was murdered by Jack the Ripper or by a copycat killer. Then on September 10th, another torso murder was discovered. A woman's torso was found under a railway arch on Pynchon Street in Whitechapel. The surrounding area was thoroughly searched, but no other body parts were found. The victim was never identified, but her age was estimated between 30 to 40 years old. Some debate occurred as to whether Jack the Ripper was also responsible for these murders, which came to be called the Thames Torso Murders or the Whitehall Mystery. Most Ripper experts discount this, as they believe they do not fit the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper. The last murder to be included in the Ripper files occurred on Friday, February 13, 1891. Frances Coles was found murdered under a railway arch. Her throat had been slit, and she showed signs of being violently thrown to the ground before the fatal wound was delivered. There was no mutilation to her body. A man named James Sadler was arrested after witnesses reported seeing him with Francis earlier that evening. Investigators also tried to tie him to previous Ripper murders, but ultimately he was released for lack of evidence on even the murder of Francis Coles. Which leads us to a list of Ripper suspects, of which there have been many. To this day, many have taken it upon themselves to investigate this now almost 130-year-old mystery. 
the question of who was Jack the Ripper has baffled and intrigued detectives, amateur sleuths, and self-described ripperologists for over a century. Let's take a look at a few who have been considered suspects at one time or another. Joseph Barnett was the boyfriend of Mary Kelly at the time of her murder. He, as you might recall, moved out of the room they occupied together a week before her murder. Police looked into Barnett because he was unhappy that Kelly had returned to prostitution after he lost his job. The theory was that he first began killing other prostitutes to scare Mary away from a life on the streets. But when that didn't work out, became angry and killed her too. But his alibi for the night of his girlfriend's murder checked out, and he was soon cleared. Charles Allen Lechmere was a meat cart driver who discovered the body of Polly Nichols. Dr. Gareth Norris, a senior lecturer in law and criminology at a university in Wales, drew up a profile of Jack the Ripper and came up with Lechmere as a new suspect in 2014. Some of the factors pointing to Lechmere as a suspect was his account of finding Polly Nichols's body. He told police he encountered her body only a few moments before reporting the murder. But because the route he drove was the same every day, investigators determined that he'd not made a report for a full nine minutes after the discovery. He also gave a false name to police, identifying himself as Charles Cross. Dr. Norris discovered that Lechmere's home address, visits to family, and work route all linked him to the times and places of the murders. Three of the murders, those of Martha Tabram, Polly Nichols, and Annie Chapman, took place at or around the time the cart driver would have been passing the murder sites on his regular route. The night of the double murder of Catherine Eddowes and Elizabeth Stride was Lechmere's night off. Stride was also killed near Lechmere's mother's home. Norris discovered that Lechmere had moved out of his mother's home just weeks before the murders began. Finally, Norris points out that since Lechmere drove a meat cart, his apron and clothes were often blood-spattered and would call no attention. Another suspect was William Henry Burry. Unlike Lechmere, Burry became a suspect shortly after the Ripper murders occurred. Burry came under suspicion after he was arrested and confessed to the murder of his wife, Ellen. Burry had met Ellen while working for a man named James Martin. Martin also owned a brothel. It was there that Burry met Ellen Elliott, who was a servant and possibly worked as a prostitute for Martin. Burry was a violent drunk who often beat his wife, according to witnesses. A landlord found Burry kneeling on his wife and threatening to cut her throat. They were soon evicted. Burry lived in the district of Bow, approximately four kilometers from Whitechapel, from October 1887 to January 1889 the same time period as the Ripper murders. When he and his wife left London for Scotland in January of 1889, the murders stopped. On February 10th, Burry walked into the Dundee Central Police Station and told the officers that his wife had hung herself and died on February 4th. He said they had gotten drunk the night before, and when he awoke, found Ellen dead with a rope around her neck. He had not called a doctor or reported her death, but instead cut her up, and placed her in a trunk. He said he was afraid he would be accused of being Jack the Ripper, so he concealed her death. Police accompanied him to his flat and found the dismembered body in a wooden box. He then admitted to stabbing Ellen in the abdomen after her death. Strangely, graffiti was found scrawled on the door of Burry's flat, which read, Jack Ripper is at the back of the store. 
Another message found on the stairwell leading up to the property read, Jack Ripper is in this cellar. Burry denied writing it, and some believed it had been written by a local boy before the Burrys had moved in. The message writer was never identified. Police charged Burry with the murder of his wife and notified the London police of their suspicions about Burry as a possible suspect in the Ripper murders. However, the London detectives didn't view him as a serious suspect. There are some reports indicating that a detective from Scotland Yard did arrive to interview him, but Burry vehemently denied being Jack the Ripper. The record of this interview, if it ever happened, has disappeared. Burry pleaded not guilty to the murder of Ellen, but was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging. A few days before his execution, he confessed to a minister that he had killed his wife. He wrote out a confession admitting that he had strangled her after they'd fought about money. He'd tried to dismember her body to dispose of it, but had been unable to complete this when he became sick. He then stuffed her into a crate and came up with the suicide story when he realized that she would be missed. He was hanged on April 24, 1889. It was the last execution carried out in Dundee, Scotland. Some still point to Bury as the best suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders. Many other less plausible yet interesting theories have emerged over the years. Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, was once named as a suspect based on anagrams created for a book titled Jack the Ripper, Light-Hearted Friend. Of course, this theory is not taken seriously by most. Sir William Gull was a physician to Queen Victoria. He was named as a Ripper suspect as part of the Masonic-slash-Royal Conspiracy Theory found in several books, including Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, by Stephen Knight. While this theory has long been discredited, Gull makes a colorful figure and has been portrayed as a Ripper in books and films, including the graphic novel From Hell and its 2001 film adaptation starring Johnny Depp. Walter Sickert was an artist who was first proposed as a Ripper suspect in a 1959 book by Donald McCormick. Sickert was born in 1860 and died in 1942. He was fascinated with the Ripper murders and even depicted some of the murder scenes in his paintings. Crime novelist Patricia Cornwall developed the theory of Sickert as Jack the Ripper further in two of her books, Portrait of a Killer and Ripper, The Secret Life of Walter Sickert. The latter released just last year. While the books are fascinating, there is strong evidence that Sickert was in France during the time most of the Ripper murders occurred. Another more recent theory comes from Jeff Mudgett, a descendant of American serial killer H.H. H. Holmes. He used handwriting samples from the Jack the Ripper letters in an attempt to link Holmes to the Ripper cases. An eight-part cable series called American Ripper investigates this claim. It aired on the History Channel in the summer of 2017. Most Ripper scholars strongly dispute this theory. First, DNA from the Ripper letters cannot be used to identify the killer, they point out, as they have been handled too many times and are too contaminated to provide any useful information. Secondly, many who have studied the Ripper letters believe them to be hoaxes and not written by Jack the Ripper at all. The prevailing belief is that Jack the Ripper was most certainly a resident of Whitechapel who knew the area well and could hide in plain sight without being suspected. It is also believed that only five of the murders, those of Marianne Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, 
and Mary Jane Kelly were committed by a single person known as Jack the Ripper. As of this date, his identity remains a mystery. The crimes of Jack the Ripper are well known to the world, the Thames Torso murders less so. But I thought I'd give you one more crime story from Whitechapel that you may not have heard of before. This case took place even earlier than the Jack the Ripper murders. I came across it in my research, and it's a crazy one for how it played out. I can totally picture this case as a Coen Brothers dark comedy. In September of 1875, Henry Wainwright was a 38-year-old former owner of a brush-making business. He had once been a wealthy entrepreneur, but by this time, he was bankrupt. After losing his business, he'd taken a job working for a corn merchant. One of his former employees, Alfred Stokes, was now his co-worker. One evening, Wainwright asked Stokes to help him move a couple of parcels from his old warehouse that was located, you guessed it, in Whitechapel. On Whitechapel Road, to be exact. Anyway, Stokes agreed and helped Wainwright carry the parcels to the street. As he was moving them, Stokes smelled something bad and suspected that Wainwright was stealing human hair. At that time, it was used for brushmaking. While Wainwright left for a few minutes to hail a cab, Stokes took a peek inside one of the parcels. He saw not human hair, but a human hand. The parcel was obviously too small to hold an entire body, so he was helping to move parcels that contained body parts, he realized. Horrified, he was still able to play it cool when Wainwright returned moments later with the cab. He helped load the parcels into it, and before Wainwright was driven away. Stokes, though, decided to follow him. He saw the cab stop and pick up a woman before proceeding over the London Bridge. Once in the city, Stokes tried to stop two policemen to help him follow the cab and confront Wainwright, but they didn't believe the story. He continued on when they declined to help, not wanting to lose sight of Wainwright. He saw the cab stop, and Wainwright went into a pub named The Hen and Chickens. He found two more police officers and told them his story. When he told them which pub Wainwright had entered, they grew suspicious as they knew that the pub was no longer in operation. They found Wainwright and asked him what his business was in the area. He replied to the officers, asked no questions, and there's 50 pounds for each of you. They then demanded he open the parcels. Again, he attempted to bribe the officers, now offering 200 pounds each for them to walk away. The officers then opened the parcels themselves. Inside, they found several body parts and immediately arrested Wainwright and his female companion, Alice Day, a dancer who worked at the Pavilion Theater in Whitechapel. Investigators went to the warehouse in Whitechapel, and there they found a pit dug into the earth filled with chloride of lime. They also found a hammer and a spade nearby. Wainwright was arrested for murder. The Hen and Chickens pub had been run by Wainwright's brother, Thomas, and he was charged as an accessory to murder, as was Alice Day. The police now set about to determine who the dismembered body belonged to. They soon heard about a woman named Harriet Lane, who'd been missing for a year. The story emerged that Henry Wainwright, a married, once prosperous merchant, had met young Harriet Lane in 1871. Already married and with a family, Wainwright set up a sham marriage to young Harriet and moved her into a flat. She began using the name 
Mrs. Percy King. Mr. King, she explained, traveled a lot on business and was frequently away from home. Of course, his legitimate wife had no idea that Henry Wainwright had set up a second household with his mistress, Harriet. This arrangement continued for several years, and Harriet had two children with Wainwright. He gave Harriet five pounds per week, or 250 pounds per year, which was a respectable middle-class income at the time. But in 1874, Wainwright's business went under, and he found himself in debt. Unable to provide for two families now, Harriet was forced to pawn her possessions, even her wedding ring. She began to drink and would show up on Whitechapel Road, threatening to expose him to his wife if he did not remedy the situation and give her more money. He gave her a few pounds and moved her to new lodgings. She told a friend on September 10, 1874, that she was going to Whitechapel Road and asked her to watch her children. Harriet was never seen again. When her friend contacted Wainwright to tell him of Harriet's disappearance, he told her that Mrs. King had run off with another man named Teddy Frakey. Soon after, she received a telegram from Harriet saying she'd left for a new life abroad. In reality, Wainwright had shot and killed Harriet when she'd come to the warehouse at Whitechapel Road and buried her in a pit inside, covering the body with lime. He continued to send small amounts of money to provide for his and Harriet's children and to throw suspicion away from him in her disappearance. But when he lost the business and had to move from the warehouse, he was worried about the body being discovered. So he enlisted his brother Thomas to help him dig it up and move the body to the abandoned hen and chicken pub. Wainwright dismembered the body in order to move it undetected, or so he'd hoped. Harriet's body had lain undiscovered in the warehouse on Whitechapel Road for a year. If not for Alfred Stokes, her murder may have never been discovered. The murder story was a media sensation, receiving more than twice the newspaper coverage the Ripper murders would receive 15 years later. In a very early example of forensic work to solve a murder case, the dismembered body had to first be identified as Harriet Lane. Luckily, the amount of lime Wainwright had used to keep the smell at bay helped to slow decomposition, making it possible for the examiners to make an identification. Her family told investigators that Harriet had a scar on her right knee and a decayed front tooth, which helped to positively identify the body as hers. The manner of death was ruled as homicide after the examiners discovered two bullets in the skull. In addition, Harriet's throat had been cut, but it could not be determined if this had been done pre- or post-mortem. Faced with the evidence, the defense tried to claim that Harriet had taken her own life. The prosecutor drew a chuckle from the courtroom when he countered this by asking if she had then slit her own throat before burying herself, and then, a year later, digging herself up and dismembering her own body. The jury found Wainwright guilty of murder in less than an hour, and he was sentenced to hang. His brother Thomas was found guilty as an accessory to murder after the fact and given seven years in prison. Alice Day had been questioned after the arrests and then released. Wainwright was hanged, and while executions were no longer public at that time, over a hundred journalists were allowed to watch him die. They then reported the details to their readers. Collections were raised for Wainwright's wife, her children, and the children of Harriet Lane. Over 1,200 pounds was raised to help support them, as they were now penniless. 
Alfred Stokes, who had discovered and reported the murder, was given a reward of 30 pounds by the trial judge. The public criticized the small amount, and journalists raised more money to reward Stokes. He'd become something of a media darling, but his 15 minutes of fame had negative consequences. Stokes had been threatened, and a friend of his was attacked by some of Wainwright's supporters. The public was so fascinated with the case, even after Wainwright's execution, that penny pamphlets outlining the story, along with cartoon illustrations, became a big seller. One was titled The Whitechapel Tragedy. The following year, the Royal Clarence Theater in Dover performed the Whitechapel Tragedy for a week to sold-out audiences. It would be reprised by other theater groups for the next several years. So, you see, the public's fascination with true crime cases has been around for a very, very long time. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I want to thank Haley Gray once again for helping me with the research for this episode. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. I want to send a heartfelt get well wish to our administrative assistant, Lorena Garcia. Please send her healing vibes. I appreciate it, and I know she will too. I hope you're feeling better every day, Lorena. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.